Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite things, hip-hop music and Chick-fil-A. But in the context of what scripture says to us and how we're supposed to live our lives. So normally, I would have you read Colossians 3 right now, but I can't do that because time really is of the essence. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about why I named a sermon after one of Kanye's songs. And, and really, it starts with the fact to recognize, first of all, Kanye, Kanye West is clearly still very much... <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of rough edges in Kanye. Well, let's all admit that, okay? <laughs> Kanye is by far not the, not, not the uh, epitome of what Christian virtue is supposed to look like. He wants to change his name to Christian genius billionaire Kanye West. And I thought that was a great idea. I'm going to do the same. So Christian billionaire Rod Gomez is, I mean, it's not going to be true, but at least I could say that. However, the reason I chose this song and him in particular is because he represents the kind of thing that you see from people who are genuinely changed by God. And it's that uh, it's this idea and mentality that no longer are things the way they used to be. I'm not the same person. I walk in newness of life now. Christ is the fountain that filled my cup. He's alive. He's changed me. There's something different, qualitatively different about me. I'm new and not just new as in new on the scene, but new in a different quality. That's the reason I chose this song. And another thing, too, as we think about Kanye West, even though he's imperfect, he represents, again, something formative in Scripture. And it's that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you become a Christian and you put off the old way of life, you become a new creature. And that new creatureliness has ramifications. This isn't just a 2 Corinthians 5.17 thing. This is a Romans 6.4 thing as well. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we also might walk in newness of life. That's a qualitative difference than what we used to be. We can no longer live according to how we used to live. And that's what you see in Brianna's life. I love that because she sees Christians and she's, she notices, man, I'm not the same. There's something different about them. They have peace. They have joy. And I don't have that. I have anxiety. doesn't mean Christians don't experience anxiety to some measure, but it does mean that Christians fight and they walk a new direction. It's interesting because Kanye quotes Chick-fil-A that's closed on Sunday. And I started to do some digging as to why Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. And I found this out. According to Truett S. Truett Cathy, who is the original founder of Chick-fil-A, he says, closing out our business on Sunday, the Lord's Day, is our way of honoring God and showing our loyalty to him. Now, does the Bible demand that all Chick-fil-A's be closed on Sunday? No, absolutely not. Uh, but there is this precedent in Scripture where we understand that gathering on the Lord's Day Sunday is something that the church has done for thousands of years. And S. Truett Cathy wants to honor this by giving his employees and his own family the day off. It's walking in newness of life. When you become a Christian, all of your life gets radically reoriented, uh, becoming new so that you can live a completely different life. Chick-fil-A stands out amidst its competitors. In fact, Chick-fil-A is the most profitable chicken chain than any other chicken chain that stays open seven days a week. They only have six days and yet they still have more profit than the other guys. Why? I, there's a lot of reasons why. Part of it is that they have the best chicken ever. But beyond that, beyond that, it's also true that they are honoring God with their lives. And so I think God is somehow blessing their, their business. Whatever you choose to believe about that, it makes my point. When you become a Christian, things radically change about the way you do life, the way you sing songs, the way you sell a chicken, the way that you live is radically changed by the gospel. And in this text today, we're going to talk about what that's supposed to look like for you. When you live the Colossians 3 life, 
you have assurance in Christ. You know that you're following Christ. You know that God is with you. When you don't do this, when you don't follow the Colossians 3 life, you're going to have no assurance. You're not going to have any connection that's real and substantial with the body of Christ. You're not going to have the joy in your life that you want to have. That joy that Brianna talks about not having, this is how you get that. There's no outward signs that you're in Christ if you don't follow the Colossians 3 life. So with that, let me jump in here. We have a lot to cover and not a lot of time. So follow me, if you will. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, that is, if you call yourself a Christian, if you have been uh, renewed by God, if you're walking in newness of life, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your very life, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Man, there is so much here, so much to unpack, but there's two major imperatives here. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And then also uh, set your minds on things that are above. So you see some repetition here. Paul is trying to say, as a Christian, you no longer belong to this world. You no longer uh, live for the next day. You no longer live for food or for fame or for money. You now live for Christ. You live for the next life ahead. So what he's trying to do is say, get excited because this life is not all there is. In fact, get excited about your heavenly home. There is a home to come that is better than this. There is a glorious future that awaits you. But that means setting your affection on the next life and not putting all of your eggs in the basket of this life because that's going to lead to disappointment. Think about this. Uh, Some of you are going to be going to college in a couple months, God willing. If your college opens and they allow you to be physically present, you'll be joining uh, a new academic institution. You'll be maybe going to a new state and having new things happen. For instance, let's say you get a letter from SMU saying, hey, you've been accepted. You are now joining our institution. SMU welcomes you. You might say, that's fantastic. I want to I know all about SMU now. You might look at their dorms and say, okay, what kind of dorms do they have? Are they nice? Can, you know, who, what kind of people live there? Um, are, are the dorms accommodating? Or I don't know why I picked girl dorms, but they're nice, I guess. Um, there are the dorms nice. Oh, what's their cafeteria like? Um, uh, how much, how much good food do they serve? I mean, what, what kind of offerings do they have in the cafeteria? Uh, or you might say, well, what's, what kind of fun things are there to do around SMU? You might start looking at a website like this that lets you know, oh, here's all the various things that you could do in, uh, near Southern Methodist university. You'll notice that bars and clubs is 100 versus I guess a lot of other things. So, okay. You know, now that SMU has a lot of bars and clubs to go to. Not our interest at this point in time, but you might also look, oh, what kind of other things can I do? You might go to the Museum of Biblical Art, or maybe that same weekend, you might go to the Dallas Cattle Drive Sculptures in case you're interested. The Dallas Cattle Drive Sculptures, always a very fun attraction to go to. <laughs> you might also look at the weather. You say, what kind of weather do they have? You know, I want to I make sure I'm dressed right. I want to have the right clothes. You might look at the weather and all these other things. Now, here's the thing. If you would do this for some place that you're only going to spend four years at, why not do this for a place that you're going to spend eternity at, right? Uh, you're spending eternity in heaven with Christ, and, and you're only spending, let's just call it 80 to 100 years here at most. And yet we do a lot more planning for our college than we do our planning for our eternal dwellings. And so Paul is saying, don't set your mind on just this place. I mean, it's, it's important. There's necessary things, but set your mind on things that are above where Christ is. In fact, let me point that out here again. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, if you are a Christian, seek the things, look after, search out the things that are above. And here's the key here, where Christ is. 
You should be excited about heaven, first and foremost, because you get to have Christ fully. You get to be with Christ, the one that we're setting our affections on, the one that we're, we're, we're saying that we pray to, the one that we imagine being reunited with in some measure. We get him fully. We get him fully. In John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. For Christians, this is comforting because he's the one we're longing for. We're looking for his reign, his rulership, because that means perfection. That means justice. That means everything set right. We get Christ fully. That should excite you. But not only that, as I've already alluded to, you also get a perfect home. Heaven is going to be glorious because in this life on this planet here, uh, there's sickness, there's disease, there's quarantines because of COVID-19, evil abounds, there's death, there's illness. I mean, there's a million reasons why uh, this planet is so unsatisfying. It's glorious, it's beautiful, but it's unsatisfying. And the reason we look forward to heaven is because heaven offers us a perfect home. Heaven offers us something that this life can't. And now some of you guys might think, well, what about heaven is exciting? Well, first of all, heaven is a physical place. When you think of heaven, don't think the wrong thing here. Heaven is physical. It's familiar because it's going to look a lot like earth, except it's going to be made new. And in fact, this is the place that God made for us to dwell originally. It's taking Eden and magnifying it by a million. It's taking what was good and making it great. So we get a physical planet with physical dwellings, and all the truly good things in this life are brought with us in heaven, except they're made perfect. They're God's good things. You might think about heaven being boring, but heaven, if it's anything like earth, is going to have untold, uh, unimaginable possibilities. Because if you have eternity to explore and to wander and to grow, things are constantly going to be changing and challenging you. Not because God's changing or that creation is changing necessarily, but because now we have the privilege of exploring perfection, humanity as it was meant to be, the earth as it was meant to be. Heaven will not be boring. I can imagine, in fact, uh, Randy Alcorn's book, the book on heaven, I, I very highly recommend it to you. Um, he talks about reading and, and, and skiing and doing things that are uh, advancing technology. I mean, if things are awesome in this life, why wouldn't they be any more awesome in the next life? And that's the point here. You get a perfect home that's designed for you, minus all of the sin that comes along with it. If that doesn't get you pumped up, I don't know what else could, but this is an exciting place. You get all of Christ, you get a perfect home. Uh, what, also, what else do we get? Um, he says, um, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are earth. Ah, I already, okay, so here's the typical image we get of heaven. Um, and you see it's inadequately short. So I, I just typed in the word heaven, and you'll notice that in all these pictures is clouds and cloud staircases and rainbows and not a whole lot of interesting things. I understand why people are bored by that. Um, and if you're, one of, if you're truly a weirdo, you might even think about babies that are flying with angel wings. I don't, I, that looks boring to me. But again, heaven is not meant to be this place that bores us and makes us yawn. But it's this uh, imagery that draws us that way. Heaven is not going to be boring. Heaven's going to be amazing. You get Christ. You get a perfect home. And here's something else to be excited about. 3.3 says this, you have died. Um, something that has happened in the past. When you identify with Christ, it says that the old man has passed away. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Here's what that word hidden means. It means that you're protected. There's security there. Uh, at some time in the past, when you were aligned with Christ, you are now uh, encompassed in him. Uh, the enemy 
can't steal you away. Your sins can't steal you out of his hand. There's no way for you to ever lose your heavenly security. I put it like this in point C. You also have a prepaid ticket. You ought to be excited about that because God has already died uh, by sending Jesus' dad on the cross in order that you would have security in the fact that uh, you are guaranteed a spot in heaven. There's no such thing as heaven opening its gates and, oh, there's a sellout. Sorry, there's no more room for you. Heaven is available to every believer and there's plenty of space. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. There's ample space for those who call on the name of Christ. You have a prepaid ticket because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I wonder if some of you might still say, well, you know, Pastor, that's, that's cool, but I'm not a big fan. I'm not excited about heaven. And I, and I kind of get that. Um, I kind of get that because I, I have this beautiful baby girl. Her name is Tabitha. Here's the, here's the problem. Um, I, I tried to let Tabitha play with my iPad and she didn't find it exciting. Um, I, I even put on for her, I streamed a, a several episodes of Doc McStuffins just to see if she would respond. She wasn't excited about that. Um, I come to realize, though, that when Kristen shows up, my wife, um, she does get excited. She starts smiling and laughing because mom comes to something that she really values, and that's the milk. Everything that's amazing in this life, besides milk, <laughs> she doesn't get. She doesn't understand that because of her immaturity. She doesn't understand that there are better things than milk in life. There's chocolate, and there's watermelons, and there's waves, and there's all sorts of awesome things. She doesn't get that because she's immature. I would encourage you with this young person. You may not understand heaven. You may not be able to appreciate it the way you should because of, the, of immaturity on your side. But trusting God and knowing that he's a good God means there are far better things than the milk of earth to be excited about. If life is amazing here uh, on the fallenness, the brokenness of our planet, how much more amazing will heaven be? Think about that. You got a prepaid ticket. You get Christ fully. You have a perfect home awaiting for you. And here's something that I think some of you will get really excited about, but I need to explain it. You're also going to get a perfect body. Ever want that six pack or eight pack? Boom, done. Just kidding. You're not going to probably, I don't, actually, I don't know. Um, some of you are really short. I won't call any names out, but you know who you are. Some of you are really short. And you're thinking maybe I could be like six foot two. I, you know, you know, 200 pounds of full muscle. Here's the problem when we think about this often. And let me tell you where I'm getting this from. Colossians 3, 4. It says, when, when Christ who is your life appears, which by the way, if you think about that terminology, when Christ who is your life, he's everything to you. When he finally appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You're being glorified with Christ. You're being remade like Christ. So you get this perfect body. Does that mean you're going to have chiseled abs? You're going to have, you know, you're going to have luscious long locks of blonde hair and you're going to have a jaw that looks like it was carved out of stone. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's the point and purpose because God is in his divine architecture of humanity. If you just look in this group chat, look, look around, there's different colors. There's different shapes of faces. There's different ideal bodies. I think it's going to look different for all of us but your body is going to be without sin. No more glasses, no more crutches, no more wheelchairs, uh, no more, I mean, no more defections, no more things that come along with broken humanity. God is going to remake your body to the point where it's supposed to be the way it is. So if you're six foot five, maybe you'll stay six foot five. If you're four foot nothing, maybe you'll stay four foot nothing. I don't know, unless it's part of the fall. The idea here is that you are given a new, powerful, sin-free, healthy, spiritual body. No more braces, no more glasses, no more crutches, no more healing aid, uh, hearing aids, no more wheelchairs. 
Your body is made whole in Christ, and what a glorious day that will be. Amen. That's why you should be excited about heaven. But there are also elements of this that help us see that it's not just about being excited for the future and saying, wow, that's going to be great that all of us are going to get this. God also has something for us that he wants us to do. Check this out. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, what belongs to living life on this planet, sexual immorality. So there's the big one, guys, pornography, sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, you know, uh, anything that you can think of that is anything besides a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman in marriage, everything else outside of that, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, all those are related to sexual morality. And covetousness. Think about that. He, he, he talks about this long chain of sins and he throws covetousness in there. Wanting someone inordinately or wanting something inordinately. He says, all of these things, including and especially covetousness, is idolatry. And verse six, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these things, you too once walked in which you were, uh, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Look at verse seven for a quick moment here. In these two, you once walked. Does that sound familiar at all? Talked about this last week here. That's uh, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. We're told to walk in Christ, right? Where uh, if you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He says, you used to walk in these other things. You used to walk in uh, a lifestyle of sin. He says, now walk in Christ. And that's what we were trying to get at last week. And now Paul says, you used to be walking toward heaven or uh, toward hell. And now you're walking toward heaven. Walk aright then. Don't, Don't walk like you used to. He says two things, two major imperatives here. He says, put to death what is earthly in you. And he says, put them all away. Anger, uh, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, all of these things. Put them to death, put them away. Don't live in those things. In fact, the put to death uh, terminology is a strong one. It it literally means to really uh, mortify, to, to, uh, to kill sin, to kill sin in your life, which implies that there's a struggle there, isn't there? Because Things don't often die without a fight. And your sin is not going to be too much different. But he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, especially if it's those things at the top of the list. And he says, not only that, put, put them all away, put everything away. And that putting them all away is kind of like, um, is kind of like the idea of taking off a, a garment. In fact, that same word, put away, is used in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, when they took off their garments and they laid them at the feet of Saul. So the term to put away is like taking off a jacket and setting it down. Paul says, take off the old life, take off the old way of living, set that down and walk in newness of life. Now, that's what this whole thing is about. In fact, this whole section really is about fighting your sin fiercely. I put it like this. Point number two, fiercely exterminate remaining sin. Paul assumes they're going to struggle with it. Paul says, I know that this is going to be true in your life right now. Fight it. It's worth it. Look at the light that is to come. In the meantime, fiercely exterminate remaining sin. The word I think about when I think of extermination immediately comes to mind, my old apartment complex, which had a bunch of these little guys running around. Uh, when I was a boy, I, I, was, I was in an apartment complex in, in the city of Norwalk, 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 uh, on Norwalk is anyway, um, Norwalk, I used in the apartment building that was infested with cockroaches. I talked to you about this before. I mean, you get up in the night, you turn on the lights and the cockroaches scatter. There's nothing grosser than having bare feet in a, in a, in a kitchen where there's things crunching under your feet. Let me tell you guys, you've not lived until you've done that. This is why we do mission trips. So you guys can experience what life was like for me in Norwalk. I'm just kidding. Um, that's one reason. Uh, but Norwalk, you see, uh, you, you see uh, things like this. And, and by the way, I went and looked at my old apartment. I brought it for you. There it is. There it is. That's my old apartment complex. I used to live in that, in that the white door in the middle there 
without the gate, that was my, that was my apartment. Um, why there's a shopping cart on the front yard? All I can say is this is Norwalk. That's, that's how we roll. This is Norwalk. You leave shopping carts wherever. Um, anyway, I used to live there and you got, you got the cockroaches. And so a couple times in our live, I remember putting uh, one of those fumigation devices in our apartment to try to kill all the cockroaches. And so for a while that would work. We'd leave our apartment for a couple hours, we set off the smoke bomb, and then it would exterminate all the cockroaches in our apartment. But what's the problem with that young person? Where do the cockroaches go when they fumigate one apartment? They go to the surrounding apartments, right? And then they come back after a couple of weeks. So it didn't even help. If you were truly going to get rid and exterminate the cockroaches in the apartment, you'd have to tent the whole building to get rid of them. That didn't happen. Christians have to have a similar approach when they're killing their sin. They just can't kill little pieces of it. They have to take the whole enchilada and go for it. The whole thing. Exterminate sin. Why? Well, here's something I want to point out to you. This is not just about killing your sin for killing your sin's sake, although it is a part of Jesus saying so. We follow Jesus' words, but here's, here's a good reason why to increase your rewards in heaven, to increase your rewards. If I told you, young person, I want you to set aside $100 a day for the next three years. $100 a day costs a lot, right? That's a lot of money. I said, for the next three years, give me $100 a day. And at the end of that three years, I'm going to give you $200,000. I'm going to invest your money. I'm going to give you a return, $200,000. You would probably say, all right, well, it's worth it. I'm going to, I, I'm going to you know, sacrifice $100 so Pastor Rock can give me $200,000 at the end of three years. I think you'd be willing to do that. Well, I don't know how good a return that is actually now that I think about the math, but let's just say it was a really good number. The Bible encourages us in a very similar way. That's why he says this, put to death, therefore, therefore, because of who you are. In fact, let me show you. Because of verses uh, three and four, you should therefore put to death what is earthly in you. Look at verses three and four. You have, you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ. You know, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Things are going to be amazing and awesome. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. He promises rewards. Um, he says, put your treasures in heaven. Um, if there are no treasures to be had in heaven, then what's the purpose of us fighting our sin and doing good deeds? He says, there are treasures in heaven that you can have. Uh, Luke 12, 33 and 34. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old where with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail no thief can steal it no moth can destroy it where your treasure is there your heart will be also the idea here is chase after treasures that really do make sense and matter first timothy 6 18 and 19 um, the rich people people who are rich are to be good to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share thus storing out for themselves true treasure treasure for the treasure for the future Treasure, guys. I don't know what that treasure is. Some of you guys might think, well, am I going to get a mansion in heaven? I know John 14 talks about mansions in the King James Bible. Uh, mansions may not be the best translation. In fact, the idea of mansions uh, comes from a, an older translation. The idea in John 14 is that God, uh, Jesus Christ, is preparing a place for you with him. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. So I don't know if it means mansion-like activity. I don't know if it means everyone gets their own little bunker. I, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that God is good and he's going to give us something that's going to blow our minds. And if we trust him, he's, he's, going, to, he's going to do that by showing himself faithful to our faithfulness. Your rewards in heaven, listen to this, your rewards in heaven are commensurate with your faithfulness on earth. Your rewards in heaven are commensurate with your faithfulness on earth. It's not going to be the same for everybody. Not everyone who goes to heaven is going to have the same exact experience, which is why he says, work, be faithful. The rewards in heaven are yours. That now, don't, don't confuse this by thinking you can earn your way to heaven. 
The ticket has already been paid by Christ. You've been given heaven by God's good grace. But now because he's a gracious and generous God, he says, I'm going to give you rewards if you would merely be faithful. Be faithful to what I call you to do. Live the life that you're called to and learn what it means to be truly blessed in Christ. You exterminate your sin to increase your rewards, but also to show your allegiance to Christ. Verses uh, six through eight tell us this. Um, on the count of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you used to walk when you were living in them. But now put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So here, let me put it to you like this. You show your allegiance in Christ by taking sin deadly seriously. Um, you realize that people are going to be judged for sin. People are going to go to hell because they refuse to repent of the sins that Christ died for. There is wrath to come for those who do not turn from their sin and trust Christ. You show your allegiance to Christ by breaking up with your past. Uh, Paul acknowledges, hey, you guys used to live the way that everyone else lives. You used to be liars, used to be uh, talkers, you know, obscene talk, you used to slander, you used to have sexual morality. He says, don't live in your past. Break up with your past and move forward in Christ. He says, you should shed your old self like taking off a dirty jumpsuit. Uh, I think about a mechanic who has that, 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 you know, blue jumpsuit that goes over his whole body. I don't know if it's called a jumpsuit. Don't correct me if I'm wrong, but it's got grease and junk all over it. It smells like car oil. He's like, take that off and, and live in newness of life. Live like Christ. Show that you are allegiant to Christ and not some inferior idol or God. Exterminate your sin, young person. Heaven will be different for all of us. And it will be dependent upon your faithfulness in this life. As we wrap it up here, these last three verses are amazing, are amazing, so rich and so powerful. Listen close. Here's what they say. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, you've taken off that dirty jumpsuit. Um, and, and, and with that dirty jumpsuit, you've taken off its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of, the, of its creator. That should hearken your mind back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Verse 11, here in this new way of life, there is not Greek and Jew, there's not circumcised and uncircumcised, there's not barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Man, this is amazing. One thing that I thought was standing out in these two verses, three verses that just blew my mind is that Paul inextricably connects new life in Christ with church life. There is no such thing as being a Christian and not being part of God's church. Um, there's this uh, story in the Bible, in the, in the book of Ruth, where Boaz wants to marry this gal named Ruth. Now, Ruth is connected with this estate that belonged to her husband, Malon. Um, and so she has this difficulty, though, because there's a, a nearer kinsman redeemer to her than Boaz. And so uh, Boaz goes to the city gates and he tries to meet this uh, kinsman redeemer and says, hey, um, Naomi and Ruth have this plot of land that you can redeem. You can purchase it. Uh, and then the kinsman redeemer says, okay, I'll do that. Uh, but then he says, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention person because um, we don't know who this other kinsman redeemer is. Boaz says, and by the way, when you redeem this land, you also get Ruth, the Moabitess. You have to marry her and perpetuate the name of Malin and Elimelech. And then the guy says, no, 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 I can't do that. I, never mind. I don't want the land after all. If I have to get the, the bride to get the land, I don't want the land. Here's how that relates to us. You can't have the blessing of the Christian land without getting the bride of Christ. You get both. You get the land, you get to be with Christ, but you also get the bride of Christ. You can't have Christ without his church. 
They're inseparable. You cannot divide them. So if you call yourself a Christian, your life is meant to live in community with the church. And there's no other option. We don't have the privilege of saying, well, you know what? I really don't like Christians. They're, they're hypocritical. They smell. They, they, they talk funny. They dress like Neanderthals. I don't like Christians. You can't say that. You can't. First of all, that's Christ's bride. You don't talk badly about his lady. But more than that, you get them together. If you're a Christian, you've also got the church. There's no such thing as being a loner Christian, a lone ranger. First of all, it's dangerous. But second of all, there's no opportunity for that as Christians. Mahatma Gandhi is quoted as saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. You Christians are so unlike your Christ. Whether or not he actually said that, there's some element of truth to that, isn't there? There's an element of truth to that, but that doesn't mean because the Christians are imperfect that for some, some reason, that means you don't have to be part of the church. In fact, you can all admit, and you should admit, all of us bear the marks of sinful imperfection in us. It doesn't mean that we get to disassociate ourselves from the church. It means that we recognize that there is humility and there is grace for everybody in Christ's church. You can't have the church. You can't have Christ without his church. But notice these next few verses here. Do not lie to each other, seeing that you put off your old self, you put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here's the thing. Uh, church life should be known for its truthfulness. When you're new in Christ, you join the church. The church now is meant to be, uh, is meant to be known for the way it conducts itself in truth. Truth for the Christian is as paramount. We don't deal in falsities. We don't deal in myths. We don't deal in fantasy. We don't deal in desires. We deal in terms of truth. Ephesians 4, 20 and 25 kind of deal with this. I, I don't have time to read it right now, but write this reference down because you see that when Paul is dealing with the church in this, in this very, uh, this very helpful cross-reference, he's talking about the truth of Jesus. Uh, uh, look through the corrupt and deceitful desires of your past. We're talking about true righteousness. Put away falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. The church deals in the realm of truth. There's no room for us to, to play second fiddle with, with half-truths and half, uh, half lies. In fact, I, I don't know who said it, but someone once said to me, a half-truth is a whole lie. They're trying to conceal something uh, that, that shouldn't be part of the Christian, the Christian church. Christian church should also be marked by church unity. Church unity. I love this because it's so pressing in our day-to-day. -day. Uh, one of the things that divides a church right now is race. And the Bible talks right to that. He said there's no longer Greek or Jew. doesn't matter if you're one of God's chosen people from the Old Testament. doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not circumcised. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or if you're a free person, doesn't matter if you're rich and famous or if you're dirt poor, it doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter your social economic status, what matters is Christ and whether or not we all follow him. The Bible just equalized everybody and said all are welcome to come to Christ and when they do, we all follow the conductor Christ. Conductor in an orchestra helps with timing and the rhythm and he also helps with the vibe that the, that, that the orchestra plays. So he uses both hands. He's got that timing thing, right? That little stick thing that he holds. I don't want to get all technical. The stick thing that he holds. And then the other hand, the, the left hand, I believe, he uses that to, to accent the music or to give direction to the way the music is supposed to happen. Uh, apart from the conductor, the orchestra is up the string without a paddle. Everyone's going to have to play according to what they think is right and good. But if the entire orchestra is following the conductor, that's when the orchestra shines and becomes beautiful because they're all following the objective standard of one director. And that is the way the church works. We all follow Christ. We all followed his direction. And when we do that, we're all tuned to his direction. Church life should be marked by church unity. 
not by divisions, not by clicks, not by race, not by anything else, not by how much money you have in your bank, not by anything, but by Christ. Young person, this is the glory of the New Testament church. I'm Mexican, mostly, um, well, fully, but you know, I don't speak Spanish. Y'all are mostly white. I think we had, we've had a couple black people in our midst. We have Asian people. We've had all sorts of people. And the Bible says we're all united under the banner of Christ. I love this. What more relevant and profound message is there for today's, for today's America, for today's globe? I mean, this is what matters. The church life is united by unity. But like I said, um, some, someone once said, like Boaz without Ruth is unity without truth. Our, our unity is conditional upon us all agreeing upon the truth that is in Scripture. Okay, last thing. You guys have heard the news, right? For the very first time, the murder, uh, hold on, it's called a murder hornet, has crossed the, I don't, we don't know how he got here, but now from Asia into the States, the, mor- the murder hornet has appeared. He looks terrifying, terrifying, right? Well, let me scare you a little more. This dude is huge, about two inches in length, about two inches. He could destroy you. In fact, his, his stinger is so powerful, it can sting through that, that, uh, that suit that the beekeeper wears. Their stinger can penetrate that. I also hear they, ca- they carry semi-automatic weapons. They could destroy you, not only with their hornets, not with their stingers, but they got guns. I'm just kidding. I don't know about the gun part, but they are here. They were found in Washington, so we have a little bit of time. But they destroy bees. They go and kill bees, and uh, they've done some damage. And so there's, there's a great hubbub about them being here. You guys also know that we're in a, we're in a quarantine. So if the coronavirus wasn't bad enough, we also have to, uh, the, the, the murder hornets to be afraid of. There's a lot of things that people are experiencing right now that cause a great deal of, uh, of, uh, of consternation. Um, the, the, the coronavirus has radically transformed our behavior. Maybe this ginormous murder hornet might radically transform our behavior. Fear radically transforms people's behavior, but that's not the way it is with the Christian. What radically transforms our behavior is our faith in Christ. So today, let me encourage you, grow deeper, walk the walk of Christ. Don't let fear, uh, don't let fear be the thing that drives you. Let faith in Christ be the thing that motivates, sustains, and empowers your Christian walk. Look forward to heaven. Fight your sin and be united under the banner of Christ. Follow his leadership. Let's pray. And then you guys are free to go. God, thanks so much for giving us your word and for encouraging us and instructing us in it. Please help me, God, to uh, help us rather to apply it, to use it in our lives. God, not simply to hear it and be entertained, but to be edified and encouraged in our walk. We love you, God. Help us to love you better. Please make us uh, not sin-free. We, we know someday we'll be sin-free, but Lord, sinning less each and every day so that we might have a bigger and better reward in heaven. We don't know what that is, but we trust you, God. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.